We're in 2 Samuel. If you're new here, we just work through the Bible systematically. So we just do chapter by chapter, verse by verse. And so if you're here visiting, this is where we happen to be. Um, starting in verse 8 in chapter 23, we're going to finish this chapter. So if you're wondering, how in the world did they decide on this? Is he just talking about David and his mighty men today? <laughs> like, um, that's just where we happen to be. So here we're given this list that is recognizing those who loyally served David, who loyally served this kingdom. And just reading through these names, uh, it, it can be pretty dry, you know, just reading through that. So we're not going to do that. We're, we're going to highlight the first part of the chapter. And, and most of the names that follow, uh, we won't read through all those names. I, I don't mean to make it dry for you. So uh, we're, we're just going to dig a little bit deeper on the ones that are, are kind of highlighted here. So verses 8 through 12 here first. These are the names of the mighty men whom David had. Joshib, Basabeth, Tachamanite, he was a chief of the three. He wielded his spear against 800 whom he killed at one time. And next to him among the three mighty men was Eleazar, the son of Dodo. Awesome, awesome name. <laughs> son of <laughs> he was with David when they defied the Philistines who were gathered there for battle and the men of Israel withdrew. He rose and struck down the Philistines until his hand was weary and his hand clung to the sword and the Lord brought about a great victory that day and the men returned after him only to strip the slain. And next to him was Shema, the son of Aji, the Herorite. The Philistines gathered together at Lehi where there was a plot of ground full of lentils and the men fled from the Philistines but he took his stand in the midst of the plot and defended it and struck down the Philistines and the Lord worked a great victory." This is more of a recap here. It's not chronologically happening. This is kind of like talking about something that happened before and it's kind of like landing the plane. He's trying to wrap up 2 Samuel and, and this is kind of a look back. And so these verses highlight these three elite warriors within David's army. Um, Josheb, Bashabeth, uh, verse 8 also is, uh, refers to him as Josheb-beam in 1 Chronicles 11.11. 11. He wields this spear. He kills 800 people whom he killed at one battle. Eleazar, who when others withdrew all around him, he just stood his ground and he struck down all the Philistines until his hand was weary and it just kind of stuck to his sword. He was fighting so much. And then Shema, when others fled, the Philistines that were coming in and he just took a stand. He defended all these fields for the farmers and so he's a farmer's hero and everyone's kind of cheering him on. And so we're given these stories, all three of these stories exhi exhibiting this really magnificent courage, this incredible bravery to stand alone and to fight against these overwhelming odds when everyone else is running off around you and yet you stand your ground and not only do you fight, you actually turn the tide for the army. You're, you're, you're there and you're looking at these guys and you're like, man, they're incredible. Really important to point out verses 10 and 12. And in verse 10 it reads, The Lord brought about a great victory. And in verse 12 it reads, The Lord worked a great victory. We need to be really careful who we give credit to. Because you can look at these people and think, Man, they're incredible. Look at what they did. And forget who is behind them that the Lord is bringing this victory 
So we, we often credit people for these incredible feats, whether they're, they're, it's of bravery or courage or whatever it is. We really have to ask ourselves, is it really the people? And it's not to take away what people do. Of course, they had to exhibit something within them, like courage and like bravery, but, but God was behind it. And when we fail to recognize God's gift behind the miracles, then we start this idolization of people, this idol-making of the things around them. Verse 13, And three of the thirty chief men went down and came about harvest time to David at the cave of Adullam, when a band of Philistines was encamped in the valley of Rephaim. David was then in the stronghold, and the garrison of the Philistines was then at Bethlehem. And David said longingly, Oh, that someone would give me water to drink from the well of Bethlehem that is by the gate. Then the three mighty men broke through the camp of the Philistines and drew water out of the well of Bethlehem and that was by the gate and carried and brought it to David, but he would not drink of it. He poured it out to the Lord and said, Far be it from me, O Lord, that I should do this. Shall I drink the blood of the men who went out at the risk of their lives? Therefore he would not drink it. These things the three mighty men did. This is referring to an incident that happened back in 1 Samuel 22 or 2 Samuel 5 when Adullam was written about. David was overwhelmed with what these guys did for him. Uh, when, when they were surrounded by the Philistines, he's just, you know, David's from Bethlehem and it's kind of like wherever you guys are from, there, there's some sort of comfort thing that you either eat there or drink there or experience there. Like, oh man, I wish I could have gone back and gotten that uh, apple pie or whatever, whatever it is. And so he's reminiscing about his hometown. He's reminiscing about the things he's experienced there. And he's there just surrounded by the Philistines in this cave. And so these three guys hear of this and they're like, you know what? We're going to do that for him. We're going to go get some, some of that Bethlehem water. You know, it's hetch hetchy for us. It's good water. Come on. I mean, have you guys had water in other places? Not to talk down on you people. If anyone's from San Ramon, I'm sorry. Your water's terrible. It's awful. My sister's in Orange County. That water, it's horrible. Like, I, I don't even know how they drink that stuff. So, it's like when I'm in Brea and I'm wondering... Man, if I could have some of that hetch hetchy water back there. Like, that's, uh, that's good stuff. And so these guys are like, we're going to do that. And, and get this, these guys didn't like sneak out and try to go get the stuff. They're like, these are the mighty men, right? These are the guys that like, killed 800 at one time. I stood up for these lentil fields against these guys. I, I, we stand up, we fight, we turn tides. Forget, we're going through. We're not sneaking around this stuff. We're just going to go straight through. We're going to get it and we're going to come back. And so they go. And you're thinking like, oh yeah, it's just a few hundred yards. No, this is 25 miles. It's a marathon that these guys are doing. Like fighting, going, running a marathon, getting water, coming back. Like that's, that's crazy. This is a suicide mission. This is nuts. But they do this because they want to bring back David this hechechi water. And, and when they get back with the water that they risked their lives for, David doesn't want it. He refuses it. And he pours it out as unto the Lord in verse 16. I put myself in the shoes of those guys. Dude! I would have been so mad! 
some things I do for my kids, right? Like you go do this thing for your kid, like, oh yeah, it'd be kind of cool. I, I want those chips. Like, all right, I'm going to go across town. You get the chips, you bring it back, and like, hey, I got those chips. I don't want it. I just drove through rush hour traffic to go get that for you because you asked me to. Like, David didn't ask for it, but like, they asked me for it, and you go get it, and you bring it back, and they're like, I don't want it anymore. You'd be not happy. And so these guys, you can just imagine, like, what is going on? Why did David... But that's not necessarily what happened with these guys because they saw something greater in their king. They didn't get angry. They saw what David did as an act of worship and they also saw it as like, we're really valuable. Because it reads, far be it from me, O Lord, that I should do this, should I drink the blood of the men who went at the risk of their lives. Like, they're so valuable. Like, I, and I never want them to ever do this again. And so what, what these guys did, it's an admirable thing. It's an unbelievable thing that they'd ask, actually risk their lives to just go get some water to bring it back. But it's not just water. It represents the blood of his servants. And, and King David recognizes this and that that blood belongs to God. That that life belongs to God. So David didn't dare drink that. It's like it, it is... I am not worth their lives. Like this is, this is an offering. So he pours it out because this treasure belonged to God. It does not belong to David. Those guys' lives, their blood, it belongs to God, not to David. And so these three soldiers of, of David, they, they so loved David and, and were so loyal to David that they'd risk their lives to, to get him some water from Bethlehem. So it begs the question for ourselves, what about our love, our devotion, our loyalty to Christ. And not speaking of some exceptional or inspirational thing that we do, like risking our lives to go across a battlefield and, and get some water and bring it back. It doesn't have to be that, but just in your routine daily living, when you have that spirit speaking to you about how you live your life, about how honest you are about things and how you treat your family or how you treat your friends or how you do your job. Just those sorts of integrity issues that are going on. What about that loving devotion to Christ in those matters? And then verses 18 and 19. Now Abishai, the brother of Joab, the son of Zeruiah, was chief of the 30, and he wielded his spear against 300 men and killed them and won a name beside the three. He was the most renowned of the 30 and became their commander, but he did not attain to the three. And so Abishai is the leader of this group, and he's not as impressive as the three mentioned above, but he's pretty impressive. But he's their leader. Abishai killed 300 men, but it's not like Joshib, who disposed of 800 in one battle. Like Abishai, okay, I killed 300 men in multiple battles, but here's this guy, 800 in one. And then verses 20 through 23, and Benaniah, the son of Jeshoiah, was a valiant man of Kabzeel, a doer of great deeds. He struck down two uh, aerials of Moab. He also went down and struck down a lion in a pit on a day when snow had fallen. And he struck down an Egyptian, a handsome man. The Egyptian had a spear in his hand, and Benaniah went down to him with a staff and snatched the spear out of the Egyptian's head and killed him with his own spear. These things did Benaniah, the son of Jehoiada, and one name beside the three mighty men. He was renowned among the thirty, but he did not attain to the three, and David set him over 
his bodyguard. So again, Benaniah, not the same level as the three previously mentioned, but well-respected. And you take a look at this guy, and he's like, he went down to the pit with the lion. He went down to fight. So he's not backing down from anybody. He's like, he's not defending himself against the lion. He's not defending. He's like, I'm looking for that fight. I'm going to go for it. Something that David could appreciate. Because David, as you know, he was a shepherd for Samuel 17, defended against lions and bears, oh my, against his sheep and stuff. And so he goes to battle against this Egyptian when he's, he has a stick, essentially a staff, and then the guy has a spear, and he's like, I, I, I don't back down. I don't, I don't back down from things. And so here are the, the guys that are highlighted, and so don't worry, no more name by names after this. right? It's, it's, it's not that. These other names on the list, which are many, they don't have the stories that correspond to their name. What we're given are their names. We're given their lineage. We're given where they're from, where their homes are. And some of these warriors here on this list, they're not even living with David anymore. They've expired. Asahel, for example, in verse 24, was killed in 2 Samuel chapter 2. But here is a list of David's most loyal, his most esteemed soldiers, and their names are on this list because they excelled in their calling. They were loyal to David's kingdom. And you notice that not all of these soldiers, not all of them have stories with them. They were just given these names. Most of them are described by their family name and their homes. And their names are on this list because of their loyalty, of their devotion to the kingdom, to the king. They fought for their king, they fought for their kingdom, and they fought well. And since David was God's covenant king, these soldiers were fighting not just for King David, but for King God, kingdom of God. And so there were these kingdom servants who, whose work was and, and will not be forgotten. They are recorded for us here in verses 24 through 38. We're going to reserve verse 39 for later, but we're given all of these names. And you'll find that these sorts of kingdom lists are not an unusual thing in the Bible. When we look at the New Testament as an example, there are many, many different lists that God does not forget naming names of those loyal to him, devoted to him, who love him. Prissa and Aquila in Romans 16, Epaphras in Colossians, Epaphroditus in Philippians 2, Onesiphorus in 2 Timothy 1. We're given details, like we're given of the three in Abishai and Benaniah of those people. And then there are these other names that we don't know at all. There's no stories. We don't actually know which person it is. Like an example is in Romans, it says, greet Mary or Rufus, um, just finished watching Bill and Ted's. That's awesome. I just watched it this past week in a Rufus. I don't. God, what are you saying? Um, but and then there's like a list of names in Philemon. There's a list of names in Romans. Like it, it, it's just these names, and you're like, so what? I'm hoping it's encouraging to some of you, because maybe you don't feel like you do anything incredible, like going through a battlefield to get some water for your king and bring it back and then being told your blood is worth it too much I cannot drink it like, 
Like, it, there's nothing, like, inspirational about your story or incredible about your story. And you're just thinking, like, who, who am I? I'm not Abishai. I don't lead, like, this mighty man of 30. I'm not Benaniah who's like, I'm going to go willingly fight a lion. Like, I think it's more dumb than anything. But, <laughs> but the thing here, the Lord doesn't forget your name. You don't have to have some incredible, huge story or some inspirational thing. Like he, he knows who's devoted to him. He knows who loves him and who's loyal to him. God knows who you are. You don't have to have some huge thing. Like you don't have to go fight some enemy or hold your ground on a farm. Like it's, you don't have to do this stuff that your name is written in the book of life because you've accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. That's enough. Now there's one name I want to highlight at the very end, and it's verse 39, and, and it's surprising, really. Uriah the Hittite, 37 in all. And if you've been with us in our Samuel series, you already know that name, and, and memories are flooding your mind, and you're thinking all these different thoughts. Now if you're not familiar with that name, Go back to 2 Samuel chapter 11 and chapter 12 and read that story and then you won't be able to see the rest of 2 Samuel in the same light whenever you bump into this guy's name. Because after reading those chapters, 11 and 12, it, it tells you about David's lust, about David's ruthlessness and his cruelty and treachery towards Uriah who he took Bathsheba from, who was his wife, and had him killed on the battlefield. And it's not a coincidence that his name is the last on the list of David's mighty men, because he was loyal. He was a man of integrity. And it's the last name on this list. And automatically, if you already know this story, it brings you back to David's really, really dark time, one of the darkest times in his whole existence of the person he was done on purpose now in first chronicles chapter 11 we have this same list but even more names on top of it and if you read that list uriah's name is just somewhere in the middle it's just you're, you it's lost in the middle and it doesn't hit you the same way as this one does because this one kind of punctuates this is the final name in second samuel 23 uriah and you have to remember what happened when Uriah's name is mentioned in here. And it's not that the author wants us all to relive the horrors of 2 Samuel 11 and 12 and to think, oh, David was such a bad guy. How can we look up to this guy? Rather, the author wants us to read this name and then look beyond just Uriah, look beyond David's story of just back in chapters 11 and 12, this is what God does with you. For any of you who are stuck thinking like, man, God can never forgive me for what I did. God can never use me. Look at what I did. And, and you keep looking back to your chapter 11. You keep looking back to your chapter 12. And you automatically start associating yourself with all of those not so good things in your life. You have this Uriah moment. You have this, like, who did you offend or what did you do? Here we have a list of people who are loyal to David. 
Uriah is one of them. We have a, a David who had all these loyal people with him, and then we have Uriah who David was not loyal to. Actually, quite bad toward. Why is this here? Because the point of 2 Samuel chapter 23 is not to make heroes out of David or out of those mighty three or Abishai or Benaniah. All this list is meant to point us to God. That this is a God of grace whose help and whose forgiveness were needed even by a mighty king. And it points back to verses 10 through 12 where it reads, the Lord brought about a great victory. The Lord worked a great victory. It's, it's the Lord. And so Uriah the Hittite is a name that is loaded. You look at that name and, it, and all it does is conjures up all these negative things about David, all these negative things about the kingdom. And the remembrance of Uriah is not meant for those things. It's meant to lead us to the grace of God. Uriah is a name that can, can either haunt people or could deliver you. Could put you at the grace of God if you humble yourself. But then if you're prideful and you start justifying like, yeah, I did, it's done with. But you don't seek a forgiveness. You don't realize that you're wrong. You don't repent. You don't humble yourself. It's similar to what Paul does in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, starting in verse 9. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. So that attitude of David carrying over into Paul. Paul was pretty rotten. I don't know if you guys really realize this. You know, we always look at Paul and we're like, oh, he's great. He wrote most of the New Testament. Look at his missionary journeys. Look at all these things. That guy was a pretty rotten guy. He persecuted the church. He separated families and, and imprisoned them. And, and he gave the green light for Stephen's death. And so... Stephen is kind of like Paul's Uriah. You can keep bringing that up to him and like, yeah, Paul, you did all these great things, but what about Stephen? Same thing with David. Like, hey, David, you're doing all these great things. What about Uriah? And maybe that's happening to you too where you have this thing that just keeps coming up or somebody's using it against you. Hey, what about your Uriah? Hey, what about your Stephen? And you have to realize it, that if you've repented and if you've humbled yourself before the Lord and you've asked for forgiveness... You don't have to relive your chapters 11 and 12 over and over and over and over and over again. You're free. He's forgiven you. And that Paul has humbled himself and he's recognized that only by the grace of God is he forgiven and it helps him see, I am the least of the apostles. Even though God uses me mightily and, and I am unworthy to be called even one of those, but for the grace of God, go I. All the grace of God. And it's in his humility and in recognition of God's grace that Paul can move beyond this guilt of giving the thumbs up to kill an, an innocent guy that was just serving the church that didn't even do anything. 
Or that a Uriah who's like so loyal, he doesn't even want to go back to spend some time with his wife when David calls him back. He's like sleeping on the floor. He's like, I can't do that. All the guys are fighting on, on the battlefield there. I can't do that. That's wrong of me. I'm not going to partake in things that those guys don't get to, to have. And it moves you beyond your guilt and your despair and your past of these terrible memories if you start walking in the grace of God and in, in his forgiveness, that he's forgiven you. And this is not just the Paul thing. This is not just any other disciple. This is not just King David. This is you, that the grace is there for you. Whatever past relationship that is broken Whatever thing you did wrong, whatever crime you committed, whatever thing is your chapters 11 and 12, you can move forward from that, seeking the forgiveness of the Lord, humbling yourself, and working that out with God. It's not a false pride thing just to say, like, oh, yeah, I did it, that was in the past, and, like, I'm over it, like, I'm moving forward. It's not that thing. It's working it out with God when those most appalling memories are just haunting us and making us wonder, how am I affecting my kids now? How am I affecting like my future job prospects? How am I affecting whatever? But if you immerse all of those haunting memories in the divine grace of God, it's not to say that your broken heart is going to be mended. It's not going to say that you will not experience sadness. It doesn't mean that you're not going to experience grief. But it's to transform those things so that it becomes a holy sadness. It becomes a godly grief that those memories, those chapter 11 and 12 moments are no longer haunting you because God has forgiven you when you repented about those things. God does not forget the work of his servants, no matter how humble the work. Most of those names on here are just names and where they're from. You don't have a story. You don't know anything about them. And that's most people. That's most of us. And yet, we're on the same list. We're in the book of life. You are remembered by God. And then lastly is that Uriah in your life that haunts you, that saddens you. Remember that the wonderful grace of God is there for you, and all you need to do is ask for it. He is wanting to forgive you. He's not making you work for it. He's not, he just wants you to, by faith, receive it. And you can have it. Ask for Jesus to cleanse you of those chapter 11 and 12 moments. And until you are forgiven, you are going to be stuck in the despair that you're in. You will not be able to get rid of it. It will always haunt you. You will be stuck in it, and it will keep you down from moving forward. By the grace of God, if you humble yourself, it will lead you to the love and forgiveness of God through Jesus Christ. Lord Jesus, we we read of these incredible stories and and these mighty feats that people have done, and yet it's so easy for us to look at people and what they do and and then to attribute those things to 
oh, they're so disciplined, or they're, they're so well-resourced, or they, they have all these advantages, or that they, whatever it may be, education, money, whatever it is, and yet we forget to look at you, that it is you that, that brings us to this victory, and all of us have these chapter 11 and 12 moments in our lives. I pray, God, for any of those who are, are just held back by them, who are haunted by those moments that they come to you in humility, asking you to forgive them. That they are indeed in your book of life. That we would continue to be loyal to you no matter how small those acts are. Lord, thank you for your grace. Thank you that there is nothing too large in our chapter 11s and 12s in our lives that cannot be overcome as we see here. Through Paul, through David, in Jesus' name, amen. If you have your communion elements, uh, you can bring that out. If you don't, just hold up your hand. We, we can get those over to you. If any of you are wanting, needing prayer, uh, Mike is in the left front pew. He's one of our elders here. He'd be honored to, to pray with you. The first element we'll take together is, is this wafer that's on, on the top that I can't get open. That I've been secretly trying to open for like the last <laughs> 20 seconds. So you might take it without me. I might just take the grape juice. The bread representing the broken body of Christ. This simple element here that is washing us of all of our chapter 11s and 12s. Let us take this together. And the fruit of the vine, which is a lot more easy to open. God's precious blood spilled for us. Jesus Christ promising to return for us in Jesus' name. Lord Jesus, thank you for these simple elements yet so meaningful. How you love us so much even though we can be such terrible people. Um, we ask for your healing for those who have any struggle of these haunting memories of a haunting past. We, we ask God for your, your healing of them, for them to recognize your grace and, and your mercy toward them.